Hey, Jay, Sinister's not a mutant, right? Sinister is... complicated, Miles. But he does have an X gene. Oh, absolutely. Okay, there you- It's Thunderbirds. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 310 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. There's something about being in this range of episode numbers that always makes me want to compare it to the issue of Uncanny X-Men of that number. 309, I remember, was the one where Xavier talks about his history with Emilio Vote. Was 310 the one where Cyclops and Cable fight the Executioner near the wedding? Or am I totally misremembering? It is. Nice. I'm really impressed that I remembered that. Especially in this year that has conspired to demolish my memory entirely. Also my sense of time. Yeah, it's been kind of a rough one. On the upside, I hear Oregon isn't completely on fire anymore. Uh, no, we are significantly less on fire. Still somewhat on fire, but the fires are um, a little less aggressive than they were. Good? Uh, you know, we, we take what victories we can, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, speaking of Pyrrhic victories and such, we are taking a detour from, not from X-Men continuity, because this is still very much X-Men continuity, but we are taking a detour from the Earth into space. That's quite a detour. Uh, I feel like we're, we're we're probably not even going to be able to stop at a convenience store along the way. Uh, there are actually a lot of conveniently located ones. It's just while you're going through hyperspace, there are these signs on the right that'll have like McDonald's logos and stuff. You just got to keep an eye out for them. I I I really like that idea, but I'm also on record as my favorite DC character being Space Cabby, so I feel like this all kind of goes together. Space Cabby, I love Space Cabby. I love that he's just what it says on the tin. He's a space cabbie. If you need a cab and you're in space, then probably give him a call. I don't know if he even has any kind of, like, complicated history or backstory or even a name. He's just space cabbie. Like, that's it. I mean, it's superhero comics, so I'm almost certain he does, but let's just let the mystery be. We're Marvel fans. We can just enjoy space cabbie. Ah, he's so great. People who are also great are the Starjammers, and we're going to be focusing on what is actually their second miniseries. We had Spotlight on the Starjammers previously, which, as near as we could tell, was just a series of Marvel Comics Presents chapters crammed into two great big issues. This is called Starjammers. And it's, you know, about the Starjammers, as they say, so we should maybe go back over who the Starjammers are, because we haven't seen them in a pretty long time. Yes, in fact, at one point, their leader Corsair comments that he wasn't even able to make it to his son's wedding in X-Men number 30. Was he able to make it to either of them? Uh, he did make it to Scott and Madeline's wedding, so I don't know if we should assume anything based on that, or if it was just a timing deal. Yeah, he's one for two. He's, he's still, still got a 50-50 average. It's, could be worse. Could be better. Anyway, the Starjammers are, of course, motherfucking space pirates. Hells yeah, they are. They are the, the space pirates, in fact, of the ship Starjammer, and they have a complicated relationship with the Shi'ar Empire. They used to run around, work with Princess Lalandra Naramani when she was trying to overthrow her brother, Mad Emperor Daken. That is, in fact, his full name. Now, Lalandra is now Empress, 
and she started making the requisite sacrifices of the few for the many. And and despite being, you know, in general, a much better ruler than her, her brother, she is still Shi'ar royalty and was raised with the standards of Shi'ar royalty. So she's, you know, moderately bloodthirsty. It turns out colonialism and empires kind of suck even if you have someone less shitty in charge. Yeah, we've talked about how Genosha is a big apartheid metaphor. The Shi'ar are here to specifically be your big colonialism metaphor. Mm-hmm. They're like the Roman Empire, but with uh, more feathers and spaceships. And probably feathers scattered around on the floors of spaceships and then robots having to clean those feathers up. Or maybe slave races because they have a lot of slave races. I don't know. It's probably not great. Some of those might also be robots. Probably true, yeah. Anyway, the Starjammers themselves are composed of members of a bunch of different species from across the universe. And notable among folks running around in space, because there aren't very many of these in the deep galaxy, their leader is Major Christopher Summers, who goes by Corsair. That is Cyclops and Havoc's dad, believed dead for a fairly long time, who turned out to have been captured by the Shi'ar, and then to have become a space pirate. He has a wonderful 70s mustache, he buckles swashes, he rocks red and blue better than most characters in the Marvel Universe, and I love him so much. And I have specifically cosplayed him. Well, you you, Hall you made a Halloween costume of him. I don't know if that counts as cosplay. It was a space party. I don't think it was Halloween-affiliated. Uh, oh, it was, that was a long time a space ago. party? Okay. Sorry. It's, it's, there are a lot of costume parties in Portland. Or were, I guess. Anyway, back in space, we do indeed have Corsair, like you mentioned, and he is awesome. We also have Mademoiselle Hepzibah, named after a comic strip character. She is a Mephitisoid. I don't even know how you're supposed to pronounce that, or if there is a way you're supposed to pronounce that. I know it's been spelled Mephistoid sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. It's kind of like the Metatron, Metraton thing in the first Silent Hill. Or like Magneto and Magento, one of whom is a very famous mutant and antagonist of the X-Men, and the other of whom is some kind of... I'm trying to remember what Magento is. I think it's a marketing platform? Uh, pretty much, yeah. It's, it's um, the back end of some websites. I just... I, why would you make that choice? It's the master of magentism. Yeah, but considering the general cultural frame of reference of people who muck around in the back end of websites, you just it just seems like it's setting itself up for, for confusion. I don't know. I mean, Magento included some valid APIs. Should, should, should this be our next t-shirt? I feel like there might be some intellectual property issues with that one. Anyway, Hepzibah being a Mephitisoid or Mephistoid, everyone thinks of her as a cat lady. No, she is very specifically a skunk lady, and that is awesome. Uh, Hepzibah is great. She is, in general, the person responsible for the violent stuff. She is the weapons master of the crew. Next up is Ha'od. He is a Sorid. Um, they are a big swamp thing looking, uh, or not, not swamp thing, creature from the Black Lagoon looking um, race of folks who are enormous, terrifying, very strong, and basically chill philosophers in their day-to-day -day life. They're also all Jewish. Uh, yes, yes, canonically, according to Greg Rucka, who has written for Marvel, so there you go. Code is accompanied by Cree, who's like a cute little white weasel thing. There's really not much going on with Cree, but I love it anyway. I mean, there's some complicated spousal abandonment stuff going on with Cree, as we've learned previously. Oh yeah, from Spotlight on the Starjammers. I forgot about that part. Yeah, he has a torrid personal life, um, which is not really going to be relevant here and I don't think has ever been brought up since then, but it definitely exists canonically. Comics. 
Next is Raza Longknife, who talks like a traditional pirate and is a cyborg with elf ears and a giant topknot and a bunch of swords, and he's pretty great. Yeah, he is he is very, very into fighting things, and he is he is the guy who's who's really at his happiest um when they can get into gratuitous conflicts. Finally, we've got a new crew member for this miniseries, and that is Kia. He is a pilot and he is from he comes from the clench, which we're gonna get to more later. Um he doesn't have a ton of personality. He likes to get drunk. I he kind of seems like their college intern. I think so. Yeah, he's like their Cree college intern. Oh, is is he Cree? He is. Okay, that, that answers that. Yeah, so he is their Cree college intern, um, who is, is along with them for class credit. And speaking of the Cree, let's talk a little bit about the various alien factions in play here. We talked about the Shi'ar already, their space bird jerks who are basically the Roman Empire. The Cree are a currently defeated race of mostly blue people. They tie in really heavily to Captain Marvel's backstory. They've been involved in various galactic wars over in Avengers. That's why they were defeated in this case. Currently, they're an oppressed vassal state to the Shi'ar Empire. We saw a lot of that in X-Men Unlimited number 5. Now, the Kree's traditional enemies are the Skrull. They are a race of shapeshifters, and they're not really going to tie into this story at all. Sir, not appearing in this film. That we know of. It's possible that a lot of characters in this are actually Skrulls, and we don't know it, but, you know. Hmm. There's one other faction that's introduced in this series, and that's a group called the Clench. And the Clench are not a specific specific race, and they're not an empire. They are specifically an anarchist coalition of worlds on the edge of Shi'ar space that have just enough collective power to basically be able to stave off the approach of the Imperium. And as we teased in the next time bit of the last Excalibur episode, we're going to be meeting up with the Uncreated once more, more on them once the Starjammers become aware of them. If you're looking for some background on the Starjammers and Shi'ar space and all that good stuff, may we recommend Episode 7, Cyclops Has a Good Day, where we talk to Greg Rucka about the Starjammers and their basics. Episode 139, Starjammed, where we talked about the previous Starjammers miniseries, Spotlight on the Starjammers. And Episode 265, Rude Awakenings, which is all about the conquest of the Kree and Lalandra sort of showing how she needed to be more of a figurehead than a person and her and Xavier splitting. It was very tragic. There's also a lot of stuff with the Starjammers really seeded through the Claremont run. Um, we get a lot of Cyclops' backstory. They're, they're around the entire Phoenix saga. They're around for a while before that. They're around for a while after that. But for now, let's dive right into Starjammers number one, Cepheid Variable. Written by Warren Ellis, penciled by Carlos Pacheco, inked by Cam Smith, colored by Joe Rosas, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comacraft. Oh, hey, Carlos Pacheco, he did that uh, Bishop miniseries that we really liked. He's also been doing some recent Excalibur, but I gotta say, this is my favorite of his work that we've covered so far. I think space opera slash science fiction is a great stylistic fit for his very sharp style. Yeah, he's someone who I wouldn't necessarily have guessed that about based on his other work. Um, I mean, I think a lot like Paul Smith, who just sort of knocked me off my feet when suddenly there were alien landscapes. Totally, yeah. So, the very short version of this series is the Shi'ar versus the Uncreated with the Star Jammers in the middle, and since the Shi'ar are still around, it's pretty easy to extrapolate how that goes. I want to talk a little bit about the series as a whole, but kind of before we dive into the first issue, or as we're talking about the first issue, because it feels a little bit abrupt and abridged to me. There's a lot happening around the edges, but the larger plot feels really uneven. 
And that's something I think we see with a lot of Warren Ellis's work in this era. He's very good at dialogue, he's very good at plot, he's not always great at pacing or balance, and uh, this series certainly showcases all of those things. Yeah, a lot gets explained and resolved off-screen here, as it does, you know, in the previous previous issues and stories that we've talked about. That said, I really like this miniseries. I love space opera, and this is such good space opera. It's also continuing a motif that we've seen before and we'll see again, and that is that Lalandra, for all that she is, by Earth standards, a much better leader than her siblings, is not particularly beloved of the Shi'ar, and especially the Shi'ar military. You know, honestly, it's kind of shocking in retrospect that she didn't get assassinated until, well, until she did. <laughs> yeah, it, it took a while, it's true. So one of the things I like about this series is how it really focuses on the, I guess, the themes behind Shi'ar culture, and specifically the themes behind Shi'ar religion. It really ties in religion and empire in a way that I think is pretty fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. The central metaphor of this series is Shara and Kithri, and those are the Shi'ar gods. Their deal is that they were enemies who were forced into marriage and who found strength and love in their union. And this, this mythology, this particular myth, is the basis of Shi'ar imperialism. The Shi'ar see all of their imperialist activities as an extension and reenactment of that concept, which sets them up really nicely as the antithesis to the uncreated, who kind of have the opposite deal going. Let's actually, you know, let's explain the uncreated real quick, because they're very straightforward. We talked about them in, in, um, in 209 as well, but in case you missed that, they are a race of insectoid creatures who were very specifically created by a big space bug god, got upset about the fact that there was definitely something bigger than them in the universe, and killed their god, and they've been going around basically angrily yelling at every sentient race that they come to that god is dead and they killed him, and if the races don't accept that, then the uncreated try to wipe them out. Mm -hmm. So we have um, highly religious space birds versus highly anti-religious space bugs. Tale as old as time. What's wild is that the uncreated are wrong. Like, they killed their god, but there are still, like, a lot... We, we know, factually, because it's a fictional universe and we can know these things factually, that there are still a ton of gods running around the Marvel universe. The uncreated just refuse to accept that. So, like, they're... they're I don't know, I, I came up with the word faithists for them. <laughs> because, like, they're atheists, but they're atheists predicated on a very specifically faith-oriented belief that is disproven by the reality they live in. I mean, maybe if they decided to get in big debates with other species instead of just firing lasers at them, they could, you know, refine their perspective. I don't know if that would really work. I mean, you use Twitter, right? Uh, sparingly. So going back to the actual issue, and going back to the title, the Cepheid Variable, um, that is actually a type of star. All of the issues in this miniseries are named after types of stars. A Cepheid Variable um, is a star that pulses at a constant rate, and the one, the eponymous one after which this issue is named is called Mother's Ruin, which is a great name for a star system. It totally is. Yeah, way better than all those stars that are just long series of letters and numbers. So these days, the star jammers are working at odds with the Imperium, even though Lange is in charge. They are smuggling Kree refugees to the clench, which again is the anarchist collective. And you know, star jammers got a star jam. Like, they were in fact corsairs for a while. They were in fact privateers working for the Lange's empire. But that's never really been who they are, and so if they have an opportunity to fight oppression by breaking laws, that seems about right. 
Well, and again, they have a complicated relationship with the Shi'ar. Remember, this is a gang that got together in Shi'ar slave pits. They did, and while those slave pits were ultimately run by Mad Emperor Deken, I mean, pretty much it was just the Shi'ar Empire. Yeah, I mean, Deken was an extreme version, but he basically did the stuff the Shi'ar do. I love this look at the Star Jammers. I love what basically is the Star Jammers bridge crew and all of the glorious techno babble that teaches us a little bit about our characters and also just scratches that space opera itch. Corsair, looking all piratical and standing in the center of the bridge, begins. Okay, open the sensor arrays, but keep the scan light. If the crew of the Vengeful Wing realizes we're scanning them. Raza responds. Mine touch be Gossamer, Captain. Hepzibah responds. Fight systems on standby. Guns heat up, I? Negative. They could pick that up on scan. <laughs> Internals? Code says. Our chariot holds strong, shipmaster. The force fields lay upon us like a second skin. So, what do you think about the way that Ellis writes the individual Starjammers? I think he nails it. I mean, he certainly makes Hepzibah more of a violent hardliner than she's been in the past, but, like, that's part of the plot. That's very deliberate. And so, for me, they all seem very competent, both in their specific personalities and the roles they have on the ship. Like, clearly these are groups of people who have had this type of dynamic for a long time and who have gotten very good at the roles that they embody. That was an excellent answer, but it also went in a very different direction than the one I was thinking. Let me rephrase that. What do you think of the way that Ellis writes the individual Starjammer's speech patterns? Mostly, I'm fine with that. Raza and Kaod and Corsair all sound great. I'm not sure why Hepzibah is like Yoda squared. It's a little weird. She's been written that way a bit in the past, but he just amps it way up. But only like a quarter of the time, and it's it's just like that really twisty syntax just randomly pops up sometimes when she's talking, and sometimes it doesn't, and there's nothing else. And yeah, that's it's weird, and I don't like it. Maybe she's just doing it to fuck with people. I would probably buy that, yeah. So I have a very important question as we talk about the crew. Jay? Where's Waldo? You've been waiting, like, all week to say that, haven't you? I wrote it down a long time ago, and it's it was worth it. It felt just as good as I thought. But uh, seriously, where is Waldo, the ship's computer, little robot guy? I believe that he got destroyed off-panel in a battle with the Shi'ar. Oh, that's, that's really sad. Fortunately, Sikorsky, the little helicopter bug ship's medic... Sikorsky's fine. Sikorsky is just... I don't know, maybe on vacation or something. Sikorsky's not in this story. We never find out why. Sikorsky's on a date with Kree's wife. Oh, that could be. And I bet Kree's totally into it as long as Kree gets to hear stories. Ooh, way to make it weird, Miles. Yeah, space weird. I mean, the Starjammers are swingers in space. Come on, it's not going yes. that far. Yes, we, we, we have established that the, the Starjammer is a continual key party. but Totally is. Speaking, you know, you're talking about, about how they are. They are pirates and they live outside of the rules, but Chris is really insistent that he is not a corsair anymore. He is not a privateer, and he says that he's not a pirate. And that's part of the, the conflict that we're going to see as a center point of this plot. Hepzibah really wants to just murder all the Shi'ar and keep being pirates and keep getting vengeance forever. That's kind of what she lives for, and she gets to do it with her awesome boyfriend and his awesome mustache— Corsair's getting kind of tired. He's getting kind of burned out. He wants to help people, yeah, but he's sick of always being on the run. He's sick of always just skirting the line between life and death. 
Well, and he seems like he's mostly really sick of the violence that goes with it. This is something that's pretty much been forgotten after this series, this particular bent on, on Corsair. It is, yeah, and that's unfortunate. Like, I get it. Space pirates are awesome. The Star Jammers are awesome at being space pirates. But, like, for characters who have been around for decades, I think some evolution is totally fine. You don't need to just revert them to what everybody's used to every time you start up a new storyline. Oh, yeah, agreed, for sure. But I also kind of get why that's been happening in this case, because enthusiastic space pirate Corsair is really fun, and ultimately whatever makes for the best story is going to win. I can't argue with that. It's true. Anyway, in this story, they are still awesome space pirates at the moment because they're hiding in the outer layer of the sun to ambush a bunch of Shi'ar ships that are attacking them, and they blow the Shi'ar all up, and it is awesome. Specifically, the person who blows them up, Hepzibah, because she's the gunner, she has these, like, harnesses for her hands with little metal rings that go around each finger that speak to a very complicated weapon system that just, again, scratches that space opera sci-fi light itch so thoroughly. And they head out and head back to to where they've been going. They've got a ship full of crew refugees, and they're taking them to Standing Still. Standing Still is, is one of the planets in the clutch, and it's where the Shi'ar's unofficial base has been lately. That's such a cool name for a planet. It is, yeah. Um, that's the, the, their main contact there is, is a guy named Helic, um, who is, is, is also Kree. But... That, that's, that's the Starjammers. What's going on centrally? What's going on in the Imperium? Meanwhile, in shitty bird space, we meet a guy named Takar. He's the Minister of Peace for the Shi'ar, which uh, obviously is very much a euphemism, 1984 style. So, first, first of all, um, I did refer to him throughout my notes as mini-packs based on that, <laughs> um, which is the abbreviation for the Ministry of Peace in 1984. Um, and, and we'll be referring to him as such throughout this because I think it's funny because I have a very stupid sense of humor. Um, second, man, I don't buy that for the Shi'ar. They are all about, they, they are all about glorious war. I don't see them euphemizing it. It would be more like the ministry of crushing our enemies and civilizing their foolish planets. Yeah, or, or like the ministry of war or the entire Shi'ar empire, which is basically one big ministry of war. There is that. That said, I do like this guy's character design. He's drawn very much like a stereotypical Roman Empire-era senator. Like, he's got that same kind of uh, close-cropped hair, bald on top. He's wearing what looks essentially like a space toga and space sandals. But the way he's characterized, he's basically one fancy hat short of every stereotypical treacherous vizier. Oh yeah, and he's such a bag of dicks. Like, at one point this messenger comes to deliver the news of what happened with the Starjammers coming out of the sun, and, uh, the Minipax, Minipax recognizes the messenger's name. Hilyani! Of the Branch Rise, Hilyanis! I knew your father. Really? I am honored that your wingspan shadows our lives. Indeed. It was I who had your father purged. I mean, it's not quite an, for me it was Tuesday, but wow, way to just amp up the evil, dude. What's the opposite of for me it was Tuesday, because he remembers the specifics. Oh, that's true. Also, he's no Raul Julia, but then again, who is? I mean, Raul Julia. There's that. Eh, was. I miss Raul Julia. I know he didn't die in 2020. I'm going to blame 2020 anyway. I mean, I feel like it's been a bad enough year that it might have killed some people retroactively. Ah, it can do that? 
shit. Now we've checked in with the Starjammers, we've checked in with the Shi'ar. That just leaves the uncreated. They are hopping around, burning down any worlds that practice any forms of religion. The series is trying to set these guys up as a serious threat, and they just do not sell it because everyone's being like, oh my god, they raised an entire world, and it's like, we know for a fact that the Shi'ar has done this a lot. We know they have weapons that can take out a solar system. We know that the Starjammers have incredibly powerful weaponry that, again, could basically get this effect. And we also know there are only three uncreated ships. I think the idea is that the uncreated are just so quickly annihilating civilizations, just one after another after another without even really slowing down. But you kind of have to show and not tell, especially in comic books, and I think that's a weakness of this series. Yeah, they just, I, again, I don't buy them. And I mean, part of that too is that I've been reading X-Men since before the Dark Phoenix saga, and the scale of response to the uncreated is so much more dramatic than the scale of response to Dark Phoenix who ate a star. It's true. It's true. Well, let's fly our spaceship very quickly in the direction of Starjammers number two, Nebulae, written by Warren Ellis, penciled by Carlos Pacheco, inked by Cam Smith, Dan Panosian, Mark Pennington, and Mike Miller, colored by Joe Rosas, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. We have a glorious space fight as the uncreated enter Shi'ar space. Like, this may not fully get across the magnitude of their threat, but it's an awesome space fight. And part of why is that the Shi'ar ships that are cut down one by one are the Sharp Feather, the Predator's Claw, and the Skyline Glide. So you think those are awesome names because you're human, but I'd like to, to, to point out that this is the equivalent of the Shi'ar naming their ships things like the Long Hair or... The Gnarly Hands. I mean, a ship called the Gnarly Hands would be kind of cool. Okay, yeah, that's true. So yeah, it goes badly. The Uncreated just burn through the Shi'ar ships. It's staged really well. Like, there's this shot at the top of one of the pages of a panicking Shi'ar pilot, which then goes to an external shot of just blinding light approaching that ship, and then that same initial shot of the pilot, who is now a disintegrating skeleton in the exact same position. I also really like the contrast of the extremely wordy dialogue as the various Shi'ar soldiers and pilots, etc., are talking to each other about what they can possibly do against this overwhelming force, and all we get from the uncreated over and over is, We can't. We can't. We can't. So Chandelier, which is the capital of the Shi'ar empire, is having its own drama. The um, Lalandra's advisors are, are gathered, and they're trying to strong arm Lalandra into starting a into shifting the Shi'ar Empire to a war footing. And we see Cerise, because remember Cerise from Excalibur, who can make like hard light constructs and made out with Nightcrawler because it was really fun, and then ended up having to become one of Lalandra's advisors when it was found out that she was a criminal? She's here. She has no lines. She appears in one panel. But she's still here. That's more than we've gotten in ages. Yeah, she and Ker e are both just kind of Easter eggs in the art. Pretty much, yeah. Again, Lalandra's advisors here want her to shift the Shi'ar Empire to war footing, to put it in an official state of war against the uncreated, and Lalandra reluctantly gives in. I am sorry. I am sorry for the predatory days I am to release upon you. I am sorry for the lovers, the friends and relatives of yours I am about to exterminate. I have today given the word that the Imperium should immediately go to a war footing. 
You know who isn't sorry? Minipax. Minipax is really excited. He gets a lot of thought balloons, or at least narration, about how he's totally going to use this to usurp power. I'm kind of surprised we don't get just a visual thought balloon that's just him, like, tying a pretty lady to some train tracks. Oh, yeah, yeah. He should have, oh, he could have a Snidely Whiplash mustache, and then it could fight Corsair's more righteous mustache. But it could be, like, a feathery Snidely Whiplash mustache because he's Shi'ar, which could actually look pretty cool. Yeah, okay, I'm, I'm there for that. On standing still, the Starjammer, that's the ship, not the team, is standing on its gravity wave undercarriage, which is a concept I love. First of all, it's a funny phrase, but second of all, okay, yeah, that's how a ship that doesn't really have landing gear, because it's essentially a plus sign with an erection, is able to land on a planet. Again, Corsair, Chris, as he's insisting on being called these days, is, is moping about how he doesn't feel like they're making a difference in the grand scheme and, and things are things are bad and they're not really helping anybody and, and you know, they only rescued a few dozen Cree and they're, he's just he's just having a lot of issues and he's been looking at this really nice sports car and does, does Halleck think it's a bad idea or is it just some kind of crisis thing? But, you know, he always wanted to be a painter. But Halleck, who I actually really like Halleck, like he's an alien, he's a Cree. He's as much of a leader as this anarchist planet has, but he's just hanging out, making jokes, and, like, smoking cigars. He points out to Chris that, dude, you may not be ending wars, but there are now four dozen people who get to live and live freely who might otherwise not have. And honestly, that's something that kind of stuck with me as I read it in our present era, realizing that you may not be able to fix the gigantic problems that are all around us, but you can do little things, and those little things make genuine differences to the people around you. And, like, that's worthwhile. You're not a failure as long as you can make the world even a little bit better in some way. It's cheesy, but I kind of need that right now. Although I would argue that that rescuing four dozen people is, is on a somewhat larger scale than most of us are capable of operating. Okay, to be fair, I haven't saved, you know, 48 people from the slave pits of some Shi'ar world, but... I don't know, I, I listened to a friend who was having a hard time a couple days ago, so that's something, right? We also find out that the Kree have two bladders, so, you know, write that down for your files. Corsair is so mad when Kia goes off to pee, saying he has to make the bladders gladder. Bladders? Plural? Is that how you always beat me in drinking contests? You people have two bladders? This is like the maddest Corsair is for the entire series, I love it. This is possibly the maddest Corsair has been in his entire life. <laughs> that is, in fact, canonically untrue. Sorry. Well, the Starjammers do have another rescue mission, of course, but they're also intercepting various communications from the big boys, so they know that the Shi'ar is on war footing right now, the uncreated are just, like, annihilating planets, and I kind of like Raza's take on this. Like, Raza... He's a hero, but mainly because he's aligned with heroes. He's mainly just a warrior, and he respects the uncreated as warriors. And we actually get a really cool look into Raza's backstory. We get a bit of that in Spotlight on the Starjammers, but this is the clearest look we've gotten, and I love this concept. Yeah, so he was the last of his species to survive war with the Shi'ar Empire, and they were they were warriors. And the Shi'ar not only wouldn't give him an honorary... Or, uh, an honorary death. <laughs> you know, that's where you get to live. But um, They give you, like, a robe and a, a shawl that you can only put on to do, be at commencements. Anyway, and the Shi'ar not only would not give him an honorable death, but they actually made him a cyborg 
to make him almost impossible to kill just so that he could not have one and would never join his people in their afterlife. I mean, I don't know if it was that or if they were just experimenting on him to fuck with him, but I love this concept. He's like, all I want to do is have an honorable death, but I can't hold back in combat because that would be dishonorable, and nothing can beat me. It reminds me of the Warhammer fantasy universe, like the role-playing universe, or I guess uh, Wargame universe initially, um, with Troll Slayers. Jay, do you know about Troll Slayers? I do not. Okay, so if you're in the Warhammer world and you're a dwarf and you're dishonored somehow, like in some really big way, at that point, your main option is to shave your beard off and become a troll slayer because trolls are super tough and you're like, okay, well, I can maybe regain my honor if I die in battle. But what if you kill a bunch of trolls and you realize, shit, I'm too badass to get killed by trolls? Well, then you become a giant slayer. But what if that doesn't work? Okay, then you become a dragon slayer. If that somehow doesn't work, it's time to be a demon slayer. Uh, that, that always works. Well, good to know that that's a p- potential career path in, in this, the year of our apocalypse 2020. I'm just saying, like, there are options. They're not great options, but there are options. Speaking of big dangerous fights, no sooner has the Starjammer left standing still than it stumbles straight into a Shi'ar armada, as one does. And as the Starjammers in the Starjammer try to sneak away into a nearby nebula, they run into the uncreated ships. Specifically, they run into the one that was damaged in the previous Shi'ar battle that we saw, at which point they just fire a bunch of bombs into the hole the Shi'ar left and blow the whole damn thing up. On one hand, that's awesome. On the other hand, they did it in a nebula, which is full of gas, which lights the hell up when you get in a space fight in it, and there's no way that the Shi'ar missed that. Yeah, and the uncreated also didn't really uh, miss them because the Starjammer is blown half up, which takes us to Starjammer's number three, Collapsar. This is written by Warren Ellis, penciled by Carlos Pacheco, inked by Cam Smith, Mike Christian, Art Nicholas, Andrew Pepe, and possibly the entire New York Philharmonic Orchestra, colored by Ariane Lenshek, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comacraft. Um, and once again, we've got a real star word as the title. As its name implies, a collapsar is a star that has undergone gravitational collapse, and those can end up one of three ways they can turn into a neutron star, a white dwarf, or a black hole. That's kind of how I feel after recording sometimes. I mean... Much less catastrophic, but I can sort of see that. Um, and, and, and I would say it's a sort of a parallel situation to, to the star jammers who have here collapsed under their own hubris. Um, well, no, they're actually just in bad shape. Okay, so we mentioned Kree before. That's Chaod's buddy. Um, as the star jammers attempt to fix their busted ship, just in the background, we see Kree climbing around the wreckage and saying, and I quote, Chee Chee I love Kree! He is a good guy. There's also a big fancy garden in the middle of um, the Starjammer, which is cool. Uh, two things on that. First, that is actually where Cypher and Mondo planted the Krakoa seedling in the recent New Mutants number one. And second, I like this. This is a nice little touch for Corsair because it's very clear that this is his garden. And I can totally see him doing a bunch of, you know, pirating to acquire the components necessary just to have a little bit of what feels very Earth-like. In his oh home. yeah, yeah. This is this is a dude who is definitely engaged in some serious black market orchid smuggling. Hepzibah gives him shit about it because, as we're learning more and more, she's starting to think his priorities are not where they should be. Now they're hanging out in the garden while 
repairs get underway because the ship is largely self-repairing, but it's in bad shape. The armaments and the shields are in are, are pretty much unusable, but they do st still have a few cards up their sleeves. Those include um, a clutch weapon. Those are chaff mirror throwers. I freaking love these things. The idea is that they combine a force field, little bits of metal, like, you know, chaff, and a hologram projector to essentially make a decoy of the ship you're in or whatever. That's such a cool idea, and that's such a, like, a either pirate or refugee type of weapon. I love just how it throws a bunch of existing things together in a novel fashion in order to just barely get by. And if you think that any weapon that gets a page and a half of explanation is going to be extremely pertinent later in the series, you would be correct. Now, something else on the Sarjammer side is the the nebula the nebulae themselves. So they're they're still in this mass of of of, of gas and, and baby stars, and maybe they can use that to their advantage. Finally, they have something that nobody else has access to right now, and that is uncreated wreckage, including bits that have the coding for the Uncreated's primary text, which Hod describes as some combination between a logbook, a political tool, and a Bible. What it's basically got in it is the stuff that we learned back in Excalibur with regards to their species and history, killing God, all of that stuff, plus a great big holographic projection of their bug god. I I mean, don't leave home without it. You know, you want to make sure you have your license and registration and the holographic projection of your dead bug god. Whom you killed. Whom you killed. I should check my glove compartment. Yeah, I, I, I do like that there are a couple conversations where people are like, why, why do they bring this with them? Why, what, what is going on here? What the hell, guys? You know, in case they forget the whole point of their galactic conquest. Or just need illustrations. Now, Hepzibah is much, much more into this lifestyle, into this general running around thwarting things, being piratey, than she was into working with Lalandra. And she, her, she wants to let the Shi'ar and the uncreated fight each other, let the uncreated wipe out as many of the Shi'ar as possible. This is the life, Chris. Fighting birdies. Something right-doing. Together being. She wants Chris to be Corsair. She feels like he's supposed to be. Everything is just so clear, and she's terrified that she's losing what was working so well for her and for her partner. Chris, however, is really questioning his goals and what they're doing to his life. Blasted, I don't want to be a pirate anymore. Life moves on, right? Maybe I want to move on with it. Back on Earth, my son just got married. I haven't even been able to shake his hand and look him in the eye and tell him how proud I am of him. I want to move on. I want to trust Lalandra to get a grip on the Imperium. I mean, we're resettling Kree civilians, good, but maybe we should have done that when the Kree military was lording it over them. They were just as evil as the Imperium, if not worse. Basically, he wants to retire, and he straight up tells Hepzibah he wants her to come with him. Yeah, she's not going to be into retirement. But before that argument can be resolved, a plan emerges. So here's what the Starjammers are going to do. They're going to shape the shields, what the, the shields they've been able to sort of rustle up together, into a cone, blow up a bunch of the nebulae, and ride out on the explosion. I love this! Space pirates should be scrappy and improvisational. This is such a cool plan. It is. It's a lot of fun. Um, less cool is, is, is the plan that Minipax is continuing to put into practice now in Chandelar orbit. 
He liked Deken, as it turns out. He was really into the whole, you know, warmongering thing. He doesn't like the Starjammers, and he doesn't like Londra, and he thinks that maybe he can use Londra's loyalty to the Starjammers to set her up as a traitor to the Imperium and wrestle power away. Also not cool, depending on how you look at it, is that Hepzibah deliberately disobeys her captain's orders and delays firing the weapons for the big explode-out-of-the-nebula plan until she can catch a bunch of Shi'ar warships in the blast and kill them all. And that takes us to our conclusion. Starjammers number 4, Nova. Written by Warren Ellis, penciled by Carlos Pacheco, inked by Cam Smith and Bob Wyacek, colored by Joe Rosas, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So Chris is thinking about this. Destroying the uncreated, well, that would mean that the Shi'ar would continue being terrible conquerors. Letting the uncreated kill the Shi'ar? Maybe not so bad. The uncreated wouldn't take over. They're not conquerors, they're just destroyers. But at that point, there'd be no one to resist the coming phalanx, which he's learned about from the uncreated records. Right, it turns out that the uncreated basically move in the wake of the phalanx. Mm-hmm. If you don't remember the phalanx, they're a giant race of techno-organic organisms that assimilate and or destroy everything in their path. There's this beautiful conversation in the rain between Chris and Hepzibah. He tells her that he was hoping that if they fought for long enough, if they fought hard enough, she eventually her thirst for vengeance would be sated. She'd be willing to slow down and settle down and just be a person with him. But he's starting to realize, especially after what she just did, that that's really never going to happen. Her, for her part, she feels betrayed. She thought he would understand. I mean, he was in the slave pits too, right? Okay, this is about fighting a space Roman Empire in the midst of a giant atheist bug war. Yes, it's about a guy with a 70s mustache and those boots with the little flappy bits that you turn over having a fight with his skunk girl girlfriend. But at the same time, it rings so true. Like... This is a couple that for so long was on a compatible path, and they're starting to realize now that they aren't. And they're both just holding out hope that they can somehow convince the other, no, 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 the way we were doing things from my perspective was good. Like, it's actually really good relationship drama. But in space, so like, cooler. With bug gods. With bug gods. Well, dead bug gods. Dead bug god. Singular. Minipax, meanwhile, is still trying to get Lalandra to condemn the Starjammers, and she's still kind of trying to talk around it, um, which remains awkward. But for now, she's busy leading the fight against the Uncreated, so she's going to get past that. And there are two Uncreated ships left, and the Shi'ar Armada is going out to fight those two ships, and they're going to do it, Minipax decides, over Standing Still, which will wipe out all life on the planet. Our way, Magistrix, is to take that which delights our eyes, and cast that which is vile to the rocks. Your brother understood. And when I end the uncreated, many others will understand too. Uncool, Minipax. Uncool. This idea that Deken has this group of loyalists who just want, you know, a return to the good old days, the horribly violent good old days, which, I should remind everyone had they been left unchecked, would have literally destroyed the multiverse. That also rings kind of true. Like, they're putting... Oh yeah, this is Make Chandelar Great Again. It's totally Make Chandelar Great Again, yeah! I hate them so much! Yeah, no, we're, we're, I feel like if we have to, if we have to cast our loyalties with one of the two big players in this, I'm, I'm definitely for the ones who, who, whose, whose main goal is attack and dethrone God. Make Chandelar great again versus attack and dethrone Space God. I, there you go. There you go. Well, Corsair has a great plan. Corsair, who is a member of neither of these factions. 
We have to think like pirates. We're going to steal a war from them. It's leverage now. I love this. It's space leverage because everything is better if you just transplant it into space. Oh my god, space leverage. That's, I, this is the thing I didn't know I needed. So I am a runner, I'm not like an amazing runner, but I'm, I'm a runner, and I run to the app Zombies Run, which gives you like little bits of story as you go about this continuing zombie apocalypse and the heroes who are fighting against it. And Zombies Run just recently started doing these alternate missions that are set either in completely unrelated settings or sometimes different genre versions of the same setting. And I did this one called Venus Rising, which was basically the Zombies Run plot with even some of the same characters, but in the future, in space, and it was so great. I'm very happy for you. I'm just saying. Zombies, but in space. It's no, cool. I mean, things are better in space. I'm, I am 100% there. Including Hepzibah's bloodlust, because once again, against orders, she doesn't want to let Corsair steal a war, which, come on, lady, that's, that's a cool thing to do. So she tries to blow up the unaware Shi'ar Empire. Turns out, though... Corsair disabled her weapons console because he thought she might do something like that, and as he explains, she is just silent and still behind her big opaque VR goggles. Like, you can tell that at this point, something has maybe kind of died in their dynamic. And again, that will be ignored next time they show up. Rah! Well, anyway, the actual plan... So they're going to use their mirror throwers not to make a version of the ship, but to project a giant version of the uncreated's dead bug god. The uncreated will react to this in some way. Um, I don't know if the Starjammers anticipate it, but the way that the uncreated react is by self-destructing immediately. That's it. That's the end. Yeah, apparently some of them are just terrified because big bug god, and some of them are like, holy shit, we didn't kill god. Our whole life is meaningless. And so they, uh blow their ships up, and then the uncreated are gone, and that's that's the end of the threat. It's it's very sudden. It doesn't seem to occur to them to kill God again. I mean, they did it the first time. They have some pretty good lasers. Right? And that's a long respawn. It's true. This is weird. Like, Warren Ellis, like we mentioned earlier, he's great at dialogue, he's great at plot, and sometimes his pacing is just crap. And this is an example of that. The big giant threat is eliminated in essentially one panel with a bunch of captions. I think that the satisfaction of this ending really suffers from the fact that the uncreated get no interiority here. We don't really see their perspectives. There's no particular revelation. There's no particular realization. There's no particular triumph in discovering this stuff about them that then, you know, the Starjammers are able to weaponize. It just kind of happens. Yeah, well, we get a little bit more look into them way later. Apparently, one of the uncreated somehow survived the exploding ships here, was taken prisoner by the Shi'ar, and way later, when Vulcan takes over the Shi'ar Empire in War of Kings, Vulcan released this uncreated and had the uncreated join Vulcan's Praetorian Guard. So, uh, there's that at least. But yeah, the uncreated are such a cool concept, and we get them as an indirect antagonist in one Excalibur arc, and this terrifying threat that isn't really sold in the Starjammers miniseries. I'm like, that's it, and that's so unfortunate, because they're a great idea. Although I feel like now that we've seen Gore the God Butcher, when, we, again, we talked about this next caliber, they'd come off as kind of anticlimactic. There is that. I mean, I love the uncreated, but Gore the God Butcher is one of my favorite comic book antagonists ever. 
At this point, Takar, sorry, Minipax, orders you. the Starjammer's destruction, figuring, oh, they were near the uncreated? They must be bad guys. However, with the threat over, Lalandra is back in charge, and she has him arrested for suggesting that her saying not to fire on the Starjammers is treachery. Wah wah. Hooray! To jail with you, sir. Or probably a prison planet where you'll be, like, worked and tortured to death. Eh, well, you're a jerk. Sure, problem. They really are. Halleck, at this point, calls in from standing still. I guess he's got the frequency, Kenneth. And says, hey, so here's the deal, Empress Lalandra. You have a heavily armed force in what is basically neutral space. So how about you leave us alone for, like, a really long time, and I don't broadcast that to people that it would really piss off. And also, don't invade anyone else, or I'll totally tell on you then, too. She's probably gonna invade other people. She's probably gonna invade other people, yeah. That's, again, pretty much Shi'ar culture there. So, the good guys won. The Starjammers did indeed steal a war from the Uncreated and the Shi'ar. And Chris is feeling pretty good. He's thinking, hey... Maybe Hepsibah gets that she took things too far with that last one. Maybe maybe my lesson sunk in. And once again, the art contradicts the captions because she is still stone-faced. Yeah, definitely removing a woman's agency is the best way to get her to understand your point, buddy. That that that's some A plus primo reasoning there. Yeah, but I like this. I like that I mean, okay, like you mentioned. Corsair and Hepzibah are not going to break up, at least not at this point. I think later she hooks up with Warpath, maybe? Yeah, but he's dead. Or, uh, well, that's when but, Corsair's dead, you're right. Yeah, Corsair's dead at the time. He gets better later. But anyway, point being, I like this. I like that there's not a pat resolution, that it's just an example of, yeah, sometimes people grow apart, and their efforts to fix that actually make things worse. It feels a lot more real, and in something that's so out there and brightly colored and full of space bugs and stuff, it's kind of cool having that grounding of relationship drama that rings true. So, that pretty much wraps things up. Uh, This is described in the series as the final voyage of the Starjammer, which it absolutely is not. We do get a little coda at the end with a bunch of Deken loyalists gathering under a big statue of Deken and scheming. That's not really going to go anywhere. The part about the phalanx being on their way kind of will. In Marvel 2099, the alternate universe in the far future year of 2099, the phalanx actually do show up. In this case, they're on their way because apparently the message from the Babel Spire at the end of the phalanx covenant did get through. They're looking for Earth. We're going to see a lot more of the Phalanx in the Annihilation Conquest event later, but it's not directly related to this. I do like the idea of this gradually looming, overwhelming threat, though. That's that's a cool way to end a sci-fi series. I think the Phalanx ended up a gradually looming, overwhelming threat because people just forgot that there had been a lot of cliffhangers about them. They just just never went away. They were just sort of perpetually, gradually looming. Maybe, um, maybe their navigator is terrible. Maybe they just got a flat somewhere. That could be, oh, like Iceman and Rogue, like they got a flat and they used the spare, and then the Phalanx captain uh, didn't take the time to get another spare. Maybe, like me, they are absolute suckers for roadside attractions, and they're just doing the meandering road trip thing. They've just been hanging out at Pedro south of the border this whole time? Just being kind of horrified by its general racism. (laughs) Yeah. So that's the Starjammers miniseries. Like, it's got its problems, but I enjoyed the hell out of it. Yeah, I think it's it's solid. I think it's... 
a lot of fun. Again, I think it has major structural issues and some major narrative issues, but the characterization is really good. Is, is really good, and the art is spot on. Yeah, Pacheco's art. Like this is my favorite of his work that I've seen so far. I'm I'm prepared to have a new favorite at some point, but it would have to be pretty good. You know who else is pretty good? Our listeners, and they've got questions. Brandon asks us via email, have Longshot and Domino ever either teamed up or fought each other? Hi, Brandon. So, yes, but less than I would expect, or at least less than I could find. They did meet up in Gail Simone and David Baldeon's Domino number 9 and 10, which, that's a really fun series. If anybody hasn't read it, it's my favorite take on Domino. Except maybe Dennis Hopeless's Cable and X-Force? Anyway... In that story, due to one of the characters having a vision of the future where Longshot destroys the world, where he essentially kills all the superheroes and uh, allows the Mojoverse to take over Earth. Why would he do that? Uh, it turns out he's brainwashed by Mojo. It's actually not very thoroughly explained, but it's still a fun story. Anyway, uh, apparently they had met before somewhere. Domino says, delightfully, I'm Domino? We've met a couple times. I complimented the tightness of your pants? We had perfect scores at blindfolded darts? Which I love. Okay, so now we know. Right? Anyway, Domino punches the brainwashing out of Longshot, uh, and they end up going to the Mojoverse to save the day. As for how their powers interact, which I suspect is part of what you were getting at, Brandon, it's ill-defined. Essentially, their powers both go on the fritz a little. Sometimes their good luck works, sometimes it just doesn't do anything, sometimes it actively turns to bad luck. So, part of the deal with Longshot's power is that not only does he have to feel like he's doing the right thing for his power to work, but he can't really afford to go up against anybody else with reality-shifting powers. At one point in a different comic, I think somewhere in X-Factor, he goes up against a black cat who has bad luck powers and his powers backfire. Domino doesn't specifically have that flaw, but in this case, they did sort of mess with each other. That said, I can't believe they haven't teamed up or fought more. Like, they have almost the same power, but powers that are different enough in enough ways to make it interesting, and personalities that can bounce off each other in really entertaining ways. Come on, these are great characters! Marvel, make it happen! An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Which X-Men or spin-off team would you like to see get a Disney Plus show? Fallen Angels. Oh, Fallen Angels would be great. Would you use the same sort of hodgepodge of various Marvel characters that the comic did? Yeah. Okay, so just like a one-for-one -one kind of remake? Yep, pretty much. Um, I don't know if I'd necessarily use the same batch of characters. Part of the appeal of Fallen Angels is that you can build that team using a lot of different modular components and get something that's structurally based on a pretty similar premise. And in general, I feel pretty strongly that that precise adaptations are not a great idea. Like I think I think doing some reconfiguring and rethinking when you translate something into a new medium in a new era is necessary if you're going to do it well. So the modularity of Fallen Angels, I think, would be a great fit for that. But you gotta have Bill and Don the Lobsters, right? Obviously, yeah. Oh, okay. So my answer is one that I've said many, many times. I really think X-Factor Investigations, like either of the Peter David eras, would make an amazing live-action workplace sitcom, but like still with some superhero stuff, maybe with similar special effects to what they did in The Gifted. And I'm going to say what I say every time you say that, which is that I think it would work better as a series of shorts. That could work really well, too, yeah. So I also would not mind another just straight-up animated series. It's been a while. I think something somewhere between the lighthearted feel of the original animated series and the more dark, gritty, serialized approach of Wolverine and the X-Men would work really, really well. And, like... 
Part of the strength of the original animated series is that it had a ton of continuity to mine, and it did, and it made it all coherent together. Well, mostly. Now we have decades more than we did back in 1992, so you could do so much cool stuff, so many continuing overlapping plot lines or one-shots with an X-Men cartoon right now. You know what? I still want my Inferno animated special. Yeah. Yeah, someone make that. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Behold the angry Claremontian narrator. You told yourself that this time would be different, Tabitha. That the mistakes of your past would remain in your past. And to a point you were right. Too bad you didn't expect the mistakes of your future to sneak up on you unawares. And with them, on tiptoe, Dog Park. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in New Fairfield, Connecticut, in exile from Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we're finally giving up the pretense that Uncanny X-Men and X-Men are separate books. As Sinister gets his groove back, and Storm does what she does with Morlock leaders. Morlock leaders.